0: Well good morning everybody. Uh, my name is Charlie Burgess. I'm the Editorial Director of Editorial Intelligence and welcome to the latest of our breakfasts uh, where despite the tumult going on, on elsewhere many of you turned up for what I think is a very timely discussion uh, what will be the true legacy of the 2012 Games in London. Uh, first of all I'd like to thank our partners, the Independent, the London Borough of Hackney, Cass Business School, where we are today, and Taylor Bennett, the leading executive search firm specializing in corporate communications and public affairs in the UK and internationally, it says here. Uh, The Olympic Games are always a moment when um, people get very, very excited. I had the privilege as a journalist um, 24 years ago covering the one in Los Angeles, and it was the best two weeks of my life. Uh, but since then, things have grown incredibly. And uh, they've grown. S- the international scale of these things is so amazing. It reminds me when, uh, just before 24 years, in fact, 25 years ago, uh, when I was covering Everton Football Club, they went on a f- pre-season friendly to Morocco. And the uh, manager said, uh, when, when they arrived there, someone said, well, what is it like to be in, uh, in Africa then, Gordon? He said, Africa? We're not in bloody Africa, are we? <laughs> things have changed a bit since then, I hope. Anyway, uh, Editorial Intelligence, as you know, we are a media monitoring organization and we analyze and read all the UK commentariat. And in the room today, we have some of the people who write about those sort of things, some of the people who influence what is written by the commentariat. And we have – this is a nice segue – to uh, run our uh, panel today, one of the greatest of the commentariat, Hamish McCrae, the independence economic expert, who really does need no introduction. All I would say, he uh, wrote a book, more years than he cares to remember, called The World in 2020. And I don't think this last week was in there, Hamish. But over to you.
1: Well, thanks so much. Um, thank you so um, much. Thank you for setting this up. Um, thank you for coming. We have not only a star-studded panel, but we have a star-studded audience, as I can hear. Lots of familiar faces out there that I know. Uh, those, some I know. The ones I don't know, uh, I know, are very important. Uh, so, I mean, thanks for showing up on a, on a day like today. Um, I think it's terrific that editorial te- intelligence should have done this. Um, uh, ultimately, the aftermath is the only thing that matters. Um, anyone can throw a party, uh, but what you do uh, as a result of all that is, is, is hugely important. And there's been a range of uh, successes and failures. Um, I suppose you would say that Montreal is the classic how not to do it. They finished paying off their, their debt uh, two years ago uh, from the 76 uh, Olympics, and the brand-new spanking airport that they built is now largely deserted. Um, So that is Barcelona, on the other hand, how to do it by continuing the Diagonal right down to the sea uh, and creating that Arts Hotel, all the other stuff that is there now, making it into a great conference centre. Um, but that then leads into the fact that there 's the physical stuff you do, uh, but there 's all which, which, which we, we will hear much more about but there 's also the psychological stuff we do and I suppose the thing that interests me most and i 'd love to hear from the panel is is how we think the legacy may be in terms of the attitudes towards sport. Do we become a more healthy nation uh, as a result of this? Well, to talk about this, we have a as I say, a star-studded panel. We have um, Neil Coleman um, on my... We're going to talk in the order that we go along here. We have Neil Coleman on my um, far right, who is senior advisor on the Olympics to uh, Boris, uh, one of these people I don't need to uh, use a second name for, um, who led work on the Olympic and Paralympic Games in the GLC since 2000, and was a former advisor to Ken, so, this is uh, not party thing at all. This is, a, this is competence, not party. Um, the, um, uh, secondly, we have John Dickey from London First. Um, London First, I'm sure you know about, has been running for what, 10 years now, something like <coughs> that? Something like that, promoting London. John's just joined it in, uh, in March of this year as Director of Strategy and Policy. Prior, prior to that, he was Head of Corporate Affairs of the BBC. On my right is Martin Van der Weer, uh, business editor and any other business columnist of The Spectator, uh, and editor of the uh, Spectator Business. Uh, and I've known Martin, you know, but, you know, for many years, uh, <laughs> on and off, and uh, I'm a huge admirer of his writing about. Thank you. On my left is Professor um, Stefan Szymanski, sorry, forgive me, who joined CAS um, as Associate Dean. um, uh, Ex-Oxford, Hartford College, uh, and uh, one of my colleagues on the paper said, oh gosh, you're so lucky you've got Stefan talking on your panel. He's wonderful, so there you go. And finally, um, on my extreme left is Jules Pipe, uh, is the uh, mayor of Hackney, and Jules is a real mayor, um, not only has been elected, but he's actually been re-elected. So he's not one of these, um, uh, the first directly elected mayor uh, in 2002 and then re-elected in 06, one of only 12 directly elected mayors. So he has authority. He has democratic authority. Well, that's um, us. Um, This uh, is being podcast. So uh, what you say, will be recorded um, for posterity and broadcast on the CAST system. Is that right? And iTunes. And iTunes. Oh, my word. Um, OK. You can listen to yourselves on the tube. Um, The the rules are very simple. We're going to have five minutes apiece uh, of the speakers, uh, and that will be um, a tight five minutes. We then should have uh, the thick end of an hour to talk and the other, uh, uh, the other um, thing that happened and I will just throw it to the floor um, the other thing that I should tell you about the last time I was on one of these panels uh, was that the floor were totally wonderful and we had a really a really interesting and thoughtful discussion there. So I think that's it, uh, enough from me. Um, Neil would you like to yeah,
2: thanks Yes, thanks very much Hamish, I'm, I'm going to race a bit um, what is the true legacy? Well Uh, Our starting point, or my starting point, obviously, is many legacies, not one, although there is sometimes a tendency for people to see uh, this project as something that can solve all the problems um, on the planet, and uh, those have got a lot worse recently – and legacy is, isn't really legacy in the sense that it is before, during and after the Games. And just to give a few examples before I come to some of the bigger issues around regeneration in East London, uh, which I hope will be one of our focuses. Uh, two weekends ago, in the city of Bristol, um, there was the first um, go at what is intended to be a new street f- festival for, for, for Bristol. A uh, very successful, terrific event and organised and um, inspired and helped by being a clear part of a cultural olympiad programme supported down there on a weekend when over three quarters of a million people in the country all parts of it were involved in activity connected with the four year cultural olympiad and um uh, in a, um, a situation where many in the cultural sector have understandably complained about some of the financial issues to do with the games phenomenal response from the sector, big and small and I'm sure that's going to be a big part of what makes the London Games terrific leading up to the games and, and during the games. Uh, on site, we've got John Armit here I, I know today, ODA um, Terrific safety record on site, just completed its fifth million man hours without a reportable accident. Setting new standards in construction safety, something we want to see spread to all projects as a really big legacy coming out of the Games and uh, great achievement there and we need obviously to keep that record up. Um, again on site at the moment in terms of sustainability and the ambitions we have there, new standards being set, in some quite techy areas in terms of uh, the purchasing and supply chain arrangements for getting timber, for getting aggregates into the site, you know, tremendous progress made in setting up completely new systems and new arrangements which again are replicable and scalable and we hope will apply to big projects everywhere. Recycling of construction waste, target set of 90% of all construction waste to be recycled and reused, actually they've achieved over 95%. Again, a new standard which we should look to be spread in in, in public and and, and other projects. The energy infrastructure that's going in there, um, new combined heat and power systems, tri-generation systems, future-proofed so they have the potential to run on new sources of renewable gas, so eventually, one would hope looking across for new housing development, we hope to see in that part of London the potential for it to be genuinely zero carbon development um, as we build it out over the next 20, 30, and 40 years. So, as I say, not one, but many legacies here, and the issue is normally around scalability, dissemination, letting people know what's going on, how do we do that? Coming now to the regeneration issues, firstly, training and skills, and just to say, Big effort is going in here. We've just had the latest employment figures for the park, which are actually, I think, reasonably um, remarkable in that we've got nearly 2,800 people working on the site now, and 25% of that workforce is coming from the immediate five boroughs, um, and 10% of that workforce was previously unemployed, with a much higher percentage of the people who are coming locally coming from um, people who were previously unemployed. A lot of effort going into training, Um, apprenticeships but other training opportunities there and I think that is you know a pretty unwritten up success story from uh, a terrific amount of work by the boroughs, by the ODA, by the development agencies and we need to broaden that effort we need to carry it through into the other uh, areas where people will be being employed in the games by broadcasters uh, and so on but that's really important for for local people and then coming to the, the physical bits first of all transport Um, I was heavily involved in the negotiations around the bid time to get the transport package right after London had been heavily criticised by the IOC for its original bid. And I can tell you we would not have got the funding for the East London Line, for the DLR extensions, for the North London Line without... The Olympic bid, we just wouldn't have got it, and that is a huge plus for London because these investments are making a massive difference—not just in East London, but the East London Line extension right across South London, going taking the tube into Hackney, uh, for an aspiration we've had for for a long time, and the North London Line again, dreadful railway, absolutely crucial in terms of working towards a proper orbital railway in London. None of that would have happened without the games. We end up with Stratford, with ten lines going into it, public transport gains, we can move a quarter of a million people in an hour. During the gains, there will be one train arriving every 15 seconds in Stratford. It will be the best connected place in town, and that will give it a huge competitive advantage going forward, and that's critical to future development and regeneration. Then, in terms of what we've put in place in the park, big budget, but from the ODA's point of view, 75p in every pound actually going into long-term regeneration spend on utilities, on infrastructure, on new roads, on new bridges, on new connections. In November, we will take down the pylons. We'll start to take down the pylons, which have blighted this part of East London for many, many years. Half a billion project nearly, could never, would never ever have happened without the games releasing new land, making all sorts of things possible that, 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 that wouldn't have happened. We've been trying to deal with that problem for many, many years. In the most difficult economic circumstances, we have managed to secure a huge piece of private investment with the Westfield Centre, one and a half billion, fantastic opportunity. People sometimes used to tell me that, oh, it's strapped the regeneration, would have happened anyway. Um, you know, Westfield were going to do it and all this. Well, I tell you, if that was ever true, which I don't think it was, it certainly ain't true now, and we're very fortunate to have secured that investment going forward. You can see the huge lift tower where the new John Lewis is going to go um, on site already, and that's a big piece in in the ground um, that that we've got there. So huge investment gone, and what we're going to end up with here is a place where we've got an internationally famous park, cleaned up waterways canals and rivers competition quality sporting venues which can be used by the community as well world-class transport links going to london and the continent and serviced remediated development sites with state-of-the-art infrastructure and telecoms already in Um, you know not what you normally get when you're tackling a brownfield development site in london the olympics will have site there will have all of those things and more before legacy building even starts. And it's going to be a development opportunity that nowhere else can compete with. We have had setbacks with the economic um, conditions we now face. It is going to mean that some of the things we were hoping (coughs) to achieve there, we probably are no longer going to be able to do. But nevertheless, in the most difficult economic circumstances, we are still as values hopefully begin to rise again in, in this area, going to have really unparalleled opportunities to create a new piece of city in this part of town,
1: and that wouldn't
2: and that wouldn't have happened without the games.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. That's hugely encouraging. Hugely encouraging for that part of London. Um, John Dickey, as really said, represents London as a whole. London as an economic uh, entity. So, how would you how would you follow that then? Thank you. It's um, all
3: wonderful, is it? <laughs> well, I have to say, the last, uh, the last seminar I came to that Editorial Intelligence did was about, I think, eight months ago, and it was on the credit crunch. And I thought that the panellists at that time were unduly pessimistic about the impact of the credit crunch, uh, how wrong I was and, more depressingly, how wrong they were about their levels of pep- pessimism. So I rather hope the optimism we will hopefully have between us here about legacy in London uh, will be uh, similarly magnified as we go <coughs> forward. Um, I think London's businesses, certainly London First, were strong supporters of the Games, not because we wanted to see, uh, however marvellous it will be, a festival of sport over a month in August in 2012. We were strong supporters because of the potential that the Games had to regenerate London. Regeneration legacy means different things to different people, and I guess there'll be different angles in the panel. As you'd expect from an organisation called London First, we're somewhat focused on the legacy in London and for London Business, and for that, that, that to us, really has got three, three dimensions. The first is it's about growth. It's about attracting people to London over the Games as tourists. It's about using the Games as a peg to in- attract inward investment to London. It's about jobs. Uh, Neil talked about the very... In fact, he had my factoid, which is that 10% of the people working for John on the Games uh, were unemployed before they started, which is a great achievement, and one, again, which we hope to, to magnify. And thirdly, it's about the built environment. It's about sprucing up the West End the place where many of the people coming to the Games will either stay or will spend some of their leisure time. More substantively, it's about the regeneration of the East End, and that's what I want to focus on today. East London has suffered with too little investment, too poor investment, for too long. The old joke that what the Luftwaffe didn't destroy, the planners finished off in the 60s and 70s, it is closer to the mark than one might like. And 2012 is our opportunity to remedy this, and to create a, a world-class quarter of what is a world city. We don't start, rather, as Neil said, with a, with a blank canvas. We've got Stratford City, we've got uh, uh, things like assets like the Excel Centre, the O2, Silver Keys. We've got extraordinary investment in transport links, which attenuate the strengths of the areas, canals and rivers. I don't know about quite creating uh, an extension of Diagonal in London. I don't quite know how that would fit. But if Made of Vale is uh, Little Venice, perhaps we can make the Lurley Valley into Big Venice. There's an extraordinary potential here. But equally, we mustn't lose sight of the challenges. The uh, wards in local government wards uh, in East London are some of the most deprived and the poorest in the country. A combination of, uh, of poor public housing, of high levels of worklessness, of low levels of uh, economic activity. Have combined to produce uh, clusters of deprivation. The 2012 Games are a real opportunity for London as a whole to tackle this. Now, rather as uh, again as Neil has said, de minimis. The Games are going to give us a extraordinary improvement in and around the park. We're going to land decontaminated. We're going to bury cables. We're going to make the area a lot more permeable for people. So much of the nine billion that we spend will deliver a lasting legacy. But we think there's a potential to do a great deal more than this. That if we get our act together the games have the potential to be a catalyst to turn the whole of the Lower Lee Valley, the whole of the area, into a modern part of London. Meeting this requires the public and private sectors to work together. It's only the private sector that's going to have the uh, the imagination, the boldness to make investments that will really transform the area. Contrast, the O2 centre w- with the dome but equally the private sector needs the public sector to get the planning and the plumbing right if that's to happen. Think of the O2 centre without the Jubilee line. Now, even that may seem like that sometimes, it's not our job to tell the public sector how to organise itself. There are a lot of organisations a lot of stakeholders, a lot of different people who have invested in the area it's up to the public sector to sort that out but We do need a form of organisation that will facilitate private sector investment. So what we've done is we've set five tests that we think the public sector needs to meet if we are to deliver the potential that the area has. First of all, we need a political champion, someone who will herd together the local, the national, the London parts of government. And we think that's the job of the Mayor, and we're delighted to see that the Mayor has set up a legacy board, which both Neil uh, uh, and Jules sit on. Second, we need a clear vision of what we want to achieve in London, what the public sector wants to achieve, all of it wants to achieve together, tested against what the private sector thinks is credible. If we don't have a clear vision of what we want, we're highly unlikely to get it. Thirdly, we need to have the investment in infrastructure that's needed to enable the private sector to build. We mustn't lump this investment in with the costs of the Games. We're as keen as anybody to see the Games come under the $9 or thereabouts budget to keep the costs down. But we mustn't confuse the costs of the Games with the case for increased investment in regenerating East London. Fourth, we want to see a one-stop shop for investors. There is an alphabet soup of agencies at national, at local and at London level, and there are more to come to help deliver legacy for the Games. It's essential that this doesn't put the private sector off, that it doesn't confuse people, as to who makes decisions and who's in charge whatever the complexities are of how the public sector organises itself we need a single point of contact for people who want to invest otherwise they will go elsewhere and finally we need to get moving it's a little less than four years until London becomes the focal point of the world for that month or so around the Games if we miss the opportunity we will not be forgiven and to seize the opportunity we need to start now
1: so much um, well actually I must say something you, you said there just mentioning the O2 centre reminds me of how fine the line is sometimes between success and failure you know, something that was perceived as a, as, as, as a catastrophe as a white elephant now the largest venue in the world with selling more seats even than Madison Square Gardens by quite a large margin so um, it, it's fascinating between the two we've had two positive optimistic uh,
4: uh, things, Martin. Are they Are they right? <laughs> um, well, I, I'm not. I'm not going to be excessively pessimistic. I'm glad to hear. I'm jolly glad we're not here to talk about the banking bailout. I'd rather talk about almost anything in the world but that this morning. But it will kind of loom over these discussions, and it will clearly loom over the economy from now to 2012. Um, and the only positive thing you can say is that compared to the numbers we've been. Talking and writing about this week, then a well-spent 9.3 billion really is small change. Um. I was, I mean, I, I was not pessimistic but perhaps a touch sceptical about the whole London Olympics idea until this year's Olympics when I began, as many people did, to, to, to be gripped and, and enthused by it. Particularly, I was enthused by the idea that the Brits are great at sitting down sports um, <laughs> because I thought there must be one of these sitting down sports <laughs> that even I could be great at. And then I watched the BMX biking. Did you see that? That marvellous 19-year-old from Crewe called Shanaz Reed who went through a series of Fantastically horrible crashes with her bicycle and got back on the bicycle every time, even when her elbow bone was exposed through and and that sort of thing, and battled on. I thought she was a metaphor for the British economy at this stage. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, actually, I think sport is important. I think festivals, carnivals are important. I think all the more important because where are we going to be by 2012? I mean, people were saying this downturn we're going into, we're going to come out of it by spring, summer of 2010. Well, they're probably not saying that anymore. By 2012, we may be coming out of the worst of it. We may be two years into a rather disappointing Cameron government. House prices, you know, still where they were in 2000, 2002, and so on. Um, We are certainly going to need cheering up. So I think we can actually all look forward to these games. We must remember that the 1948 London Games, the austerity games, were a triumph, but they were the austerity games. Matthew Taylor of the RSA said to me this morning he's working on a a program about the new era of austerity. Um, So I think that's a thought to bear in mind. Um, The physical legacy others know much more about than me, I won't bang on about the biodiversity of the park and all that stuff. But the one thing I would say about the physical legacy is the transport improvements are absolutely vital to this. Everyone in the world knows London has an absolutely crap transport system. This is a huge opportunity to set a deadline to make big improvements in that. But I think where I can make a sort of fresher contribution is to talk about the wider legacy, the the reputation ambiance of London legacy. one practical legacy I want to emphasize is that this, because of the financial pressures we should not end up with a great deficit of funding for everything else that isn't London and isn't the Olympics I, as some of you would know, live in North Yorkshire and I'm very involved in the arts up there I don't want to see funding for the arts and sport beyond the southeast of England radically slashed in the next few years to pay for the Olympics, that's a sideline so legacy of past Olympics Well, Hamish mentioned Barcelona. We could mention Sydney as having had something of a triumph of establishing Australia as a young, optimistic, sporting nation, a force in its hemisphere, a new new force for good in the world, as it were. So that was a very positive one. On the other side, um, Montreal. Catastrophic legacy, really. 30 years of debt, they called the... The the stadium, the big O, O spelt O-W-E, because the debt um, hung on for 30 years, was only paid off in 2006. Athens, according to the Daily Mail, the Olympic venues now occupied by rats and gypsies. Scandals still hanging over how the construction was completed and so on. So somehow we want to come out of this with a positive um, reputational legacy for London. Um, And I think it's very important to set the tone for that as well as to set the budget so that there isn't a sort of terrible financial legacy. Um, The austerity games were a triumph. Um, They established a certain vision of London for the world in the late 1940s, the post-war era. London is a historic city. It's a cheerful city. Londoners have a sense of humour. All of that are things to be emphasised as well as all the... Uh, more obvious multicultural cosmopolitan aspects of modern London. Um, I thought the double-decker bus thing in the closing ceremony in Beijing was a a moment of genius, actually, something to really be proud of. Because, actually, if you think what Britain does well in terms of of ceremonial and public events, it's actually largely... um, in the military sphere and the the royal household represented here by Geoffrey Matthews are the people who are best at this, whereas the Millennium Exhibition and the contents of the Millennium Night show were considered a sort of national fiasco. Um, So what we're looking for in the opening ceremony is not the sort of totalitarian kind of vulgar show-off thing of Beijing, but I think we should take as our model the Queen Mother's funeral as being um, an outstanding example of how the British do beautiful, elegant, slightly eccentric ceremonial. So that's, those, those are my initial mm-hmm. thoughts on this, um, that we want to think very carefully. If there has to be a plan B where things have to be cut back, let's look at, look at historic venues, look at ways of, of working the Olympics into, as it were, daily life of London, of reusing empty spaces in other ways. Uh, but let's emphasize cheerfulness, Britishness. Um, and if it is an age of austerity, let's make that a virtue of the games. Thank you so much. And
1: um, I'm not sure I like this bit about, the, uh, about it being a, an elegant grand funeral. Um, I, think, uh, I think we'll uh, move on from that one, I yeah, hope. Good, good, good. Stefan uh, Szymanski is um, a professor of economics, um, uh, specializing in the business of sport particularly in the Olympics. So what can you tell us about the, uh, the business of the Olympics?
5: Well, thank you, Hamish. I, I, I do feel a little bit like Banquo's ghosts at these kind of gatherings, so I hope I won't be driving you all insane. But I think when we talk about the issue of legacy, we need to start... And I think the words you used at the beginning, Hamish, were the right words. <laughs> what we're hosting here is a big party and it's a, it's a party that the world is going to come to. And the positive thing is that we will have the world's attention, it will be a great success, we will put on a good show, um, and the, legacy, uh, the immediate legacy of that is going to be um, there will be a feel-good factor associated with it. And indeed, you know, when we first um, bid for the Games, that was part of, part of what we recognised would, would be the benefit. I think the danger is that we are overstating some of the other potential legacy benefits and we're leading to a mismatch of expectations between um, certainly the people more widely in the UK and the people who are are running these events and I think we should should try and hold ourselves back a little bit. we actually have an official set of legacy objectives which have been stated by the government. Now, there's a DCMS document you can download from their website that says exactly what we uh, as a nation intend our legacy to be. And I'd, I'd heartily recommend you to, to take a look. If I may just briefly go through the, the five key legacy objectives. The first is to make the UK a, a world-leading sporting nation. Well, uh, I have to say, we were a world-leading, sport-leading nation um, even before we we won the 2012 Olympics. Um, We have some of the major sports events in this country. We have some of the most important leagues in this country. And many of the biggest sports in the world were founded in this country. And indeed, there's an awful lot of participation in sport um, in this country. The second is to transform um, the heart of East London, and again, for, for this, I'd urge you to look at a map and just see, look at the actual physical area that we're talking about. Um, some people get this project confused with the Thames Gateway. Um, if you see, compare the Olympic site to the Thames Gateway. There's just no comparison. We're talking about a very small area and building what is a relatively large park next to what is already a very big park that we have in the region, which is Victoria Park. So the and just to put again, put this in perspective. Most economic studies show that legacy impacts of uh, economic, on economic development are very limited, largely because it's so expensive to buy development through major sporting events. So flip the story around, 10% of people who are working on the site were unemployed. In other words, in order to build this, this Olympic site and generate employment, we're taking 90% of people out of jobs they had already. That's, that's a very, very expensive way to buy new jobs. The, the third is to make the Olympic part a blueprint for sustainable living well, in a sense that's a, that, i mean at least that 's guaranteed i mean if you if, uh, if you visited the site as I did many times before construction started it was it was a mess and a nightmare with a lot of horrible industries it 's true all those horrible industries have been run out, but on the other hand they 're moving elsewhere so in terms of sustainability for the u k as a whole uh, I question whether whether there's any major benefit in, in that um, the, the, um, the last one, I think, is, to, is, is quite interesting: is to demonstrate the UK is a creative, inclusive, and welcoming place uh, to live in and, and visit for business. And I think, I mean, I think that's fine. I think that that kind of broader aspiration m- maybe works well. But I think the key aspiration for the legacy that I think we're really missing out on is participation in sport. Part of the participation benefit is meant to be five hours of high-quality sport for all 15 to, uh, 5 to 16-year-olds. The most shocking statistic about the Beijing Olympics, to my mind, was that over 50% of the medals were won by athletes who had attended private school. That is 7% of our population. We are scandalously bad at at making sport uh, available. And if you read the DCS document, the one financial commitment in that is a £75 million advertising campaign. This is where we should be thinking about legacy, and I think we we need to have more realism and we need to be more targeted and focused on what we really want to get out of the games.
1: Well, Thank you, Stefan. Thank you for those tough-minded comments. You make me um, proud to be an economist too. (laughs) Um, and and particularly thank you for those points uh, 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 about uh, uh, the need to get people doing more sport Um, Jules, um, it affects you probably, your borough uh, because it's there more than anybody else in this room Um, (laughs) what, what do you have to say about that? Well,
6: despite, despite what Stefan said, I'm going to keep smiling. Um, the sun is shining on Hackney today, and we don't have any money in any Icelandic banks, so um, I, can, I can smile <laughs> cheerfully on. Um, I, I need to start really by endorsing everything uh, that Neil and, and John said. And I think they covered perfectly, actually, what um, our hopes and aspirations are at, um, of the legacy for you know, e- e- East London in general. And in particular, this issue about whether it would have happened without the games. You know, the, the undergrounding of the power lines, the land remediation, the cleaning up of the canals, wiring up for power, internet connectivity, and the physical connectivity as well can't be underestimated when you've ever tried to cross that area of East London. And, you know, it was right what, what one of the panellists said earlier about you know this, some of these industries have been there 100 years, or they replicate the kind of industries that have been there 100 years, you know, whether it was tanneries... Polluting the River Lee a hundred years ago, or whether it was um, uh, only the, you know a year or two ago, a breakers yard that employed one or two people, that the oil runoff was again running into the River Lee and, and polluting it. It hasn't really changed uh, in, in, in a century, and without the games, that would have continued for another 100 years. People talk about 9.3 billion pounds. Oh, uh, that's a, an incredible amount of money, to, you know, to, to make a change there. But none of that money would have been spent. No one would have proposed one penny of that money to be spent on the infrastructure in that particular location without something like the Games happening. Um, What we're actually trying to do there is actually create a new neighbourhood. And not just a new neighbourhood in Hackney. We are creating half a new London borough. If I said, well, we're going to actually knock down half of Hackney and rebuild it, or half of Croydon, well, actually, some people might be quite in favour of knocking down and rebuilding half Croydon, but, you know, then that would be breathtaking for people. But that's actually what's happening in that area. Half a London borough that's the equivalent of half a London borough that has been ignored for a century. And, I'd, and whether that's worth five, uh, £9 billion being spent on it, well, the five Olympic boroughs spend that between themselves in two years in supplying services, and that doesn't include health services, doesn't include job seekers and things like that. That's just what the actual boroughs spend between themselves. So as I said, I can only endorse what uh, uh, Neil and and John said, but add there's a huge social legacy that we're hoping to achieve out of this as well, Um, whether it's through the volunteering, whether it's through the job training and getting people into work uh, (coughs) that Neil mentioned. Um, but also there's the cultural Olympiad that, you know, over the next four years, um, you know, we're hoping to create something that's going to rival the Edinburgh Festival um, uh, by 2012 and continue that as, as a lasting, uh, lasting legacy. And, and that, that, that cultural Olympiad links into something that I want to talk about, specifically um, about, about Hackney. Because what do I want to get out of the Games beyond all those great things that Neil said that, that, that I endorse? Well, it's about reputation. I mean, Hackney Council is a poorly performing council, highest council tax in the country, and it's got the highest crime of anywhere in the country. Most of the people in this room probably think that. Certainly most of the people outside across the country think that. Certainly that's what the press keep on repeating again and again. But actually, we're, by the Audit Commission standards, three-star Improving Strongly Authority puts us in the top 22 authorities in this country. There are 20 London boroughs. Two-thirds of the London boroughs have a higher council tax than we do, and actually it's quite a low, uh, London's uh, lower than most of the country. And as to crime, it's the Sunday Times journalist that proposed to uh, uh, Jackie Smith uh, when reaching for an example of a high-crime borough she might not be willing to wander around late at night. He picked Hackney, whereas actually there are 15 boroughs in London with a higher crime rate uh, on the street, 15 boroughs you're more likely to be burgled in. Um, and 8,500 fewer crimes in Hackney over the last year than there were four years ago. But why don't people know that? We need something in the East End of London that challenges the reputation that, that we have for us to go forward. So, you know, we need that something to redefine the reputation. So what should we be known for? Well, there are around 12,000 artists... Um, based in five host boroughs, making it the largest cultural quarter in Europe. Five winners of the Turner Prize, Britain's most acclaimed art prize, uh, live and work in the host boroughs. Um, Basically, they're considered the home of European contemporary art. There are more than 60 galleries, 60 commercial galleries at that, based in Hackney and, and Tower Hamlets alone. Okay, not just fine artists, though. Not just people, I don't know, pickling sharks and making an awful lot of money just for themselves. It's actually creative industries. Uh, Designers, from fashion designers to web designers, film editors editing uh, work from Hollywood and sending it back down uh, using the connectivity that the corporation, uh, the City of London, um, offers. Uh, Recording studios, and on and on and on, from Hoxton through to Hackney Wick. (coughs) Um, one in five new jobs in London are created in these kind of industries. Um, and, incredibly, they generate for London £21 billion a year to the London economy. And Hackney is absolutely at heart of that. You know, these kind of industries moved out of Soho a long time ago uh, and still are moving out. Uh, because the power and the connectivity is not there. The city fringe really isn't uh, suitable any any longer. The press centre and the IBC, and this is what I want to finish on, uh, and is so important to Hackney, they've offered the ideal location for that industry to move to. They're desperate for the space and the power and the connectivity that the international press centre and the broadcast centre could offer. But we need an anchor tenant. The big terrestrial broadcasters, a number of them, their leases are up for renewal in about four years' time. We've been holding meetings, and our colleagues have been holding, me- holding meetings with people like BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Microsoft Reuters, BAFTA, I have to read the list, Pinewood Studios, Athos Origin, amongst others. People are interested, but four or five years out, they're not going to put £50 million pounds on the table and book uh, book space. And we've talked about 30 industry companies, many of whom are actually interested in being part of this, but... If you're expecting people like that to put that kind of money out on the table five years out, it's not going to happen. They're not going to commit. And this current financial situation means that the banks are really reluctant to, uh, to take the gamble on putting money up front, investing in that, on uh, or, or rather a soft interest from, from those companies. So the situation we're on are now, what, what started out as 1.3 million square feet of space, so that's one and a half times Canary-Wolf Tower. Um, that Well, that's uh, first of all, it was halved when it was suggested that the IBC, the broadcast centre, would uh, be temporary. And now there's talk of the permanent space in the press centre um, dropping, so now we're back down to a fifth of what was originally proposed, just a quarter of a million uh, square feet. Plus, that means that there's a big question mark over how much of what Neil talked about, about being wired up, how much that's going to be permanent and how much... It's going to be for the future, because if you've only got to wire it up for two weeks in 2012 and then rip it all out, you're going to build it for 2012. You're not going to build for 2015, 2020, and 2030. So I want to end, really, on an appeal, really, to all those involved, whether it's the banks, particularly the Treasury. Uh, Because we've got to move away from this. We're so scared now of it appearing more than £9.3 billion of public money. We're in danger of saying, because it's not going to go above 9.3 to 9.4 or 10, then that means we are going to just build for the short term and tear it down and hope that the economy improved by 2013 is going to sort this mess out. So all those people, banks, Treasury, LDA, media companies, they can't afford to be cautious if they're going to help actually redefine this part of London? We know, not, we know what North London's about. Well, the West London's got the West End. South Bank's known for the South. What is the East known for? Are we really going to go through the next century leaving this broken part of, of, of London without actually being defined for something that this world city can really be proud of?
1: Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Jules, and um, I suppose uh, that's the key worry of many people um, in this room. Uh, Will we give a great party but uh, cock up the the aftermath? I should by the way also just tell the audience since you uh, uh, criticised the Sunday Times for its uh, comments on Hackney uh, uh, Jules was a fir- former journalist on the Sunday Times so uh, you know uh, <laughs> we um, we all, uh, we all uh, rise to uh, greater things sometimes, some of us haven't quite managed to get out of journalism. Let's throw this to the audience because I think I know we have a huge amount of expertise in this room uh, and I'd just like you to identify yourselves please when you ask a question. I'll try and make sure we get everybody, one there and one there, I'll come to you next. Uh, Just identify yourselves and then direct who you would like it to be to among the panel, and then other people can join in if they like, thanks.
7: Greg Rosen, uh, Bellenden Public Affairs. Um, Question for Neil Coleman. Um, Neil, picking up on Jules Pipe's point about the tensions between uh, investment in the three weeks of sport an investment in a sustainable legacy. I remember when I worked with you, um, when I was head of media at the London Development Agency during the bid, I remember how committed you were to the legacy. I remember uh, that you were and do passionately believe in the importance of the legacy. But as Jules has said, and as others on the panel have said, there is this tension. The Treasury uh, potentially will be saying we need to keep a grip on costs, we need to cut down on cost overruns. will these people. Um, Who will be wanting people around sepco? Maybe who will be focusing on the importance of that three weeks and obviously it's important that those three weeks go well How will you ensure that the legacy isn't sacrificed? For those three weeks of sport and that the sustainability commitments which which um, All those involved made end up as a reality
2: well, that, I mean, that's a big question, obviously. I mean, I, I, I mean, it, it's not primarily um, for me. It, it's it's a primarily an issue for for the mayor. And I, um, I mean, I, as Hamish said in in opening, I've worked for for both uh, the people who have been uh, mayor of London. And actually, I don't think there's, uh, you know, I don't think you can really. Put much of a cigarette paper or whatever the expression is between their commitments to legacy. I think they're both absolutely signed up to to this, and and the mayor and the boroughs have to stand firm on on some of this stuff at, at the moment. They have they a the people, perhaps with Hazel Blears' department, who really have to come together to defend the legacy, um, and I think. It was reflected in the report that David Ross wrote for Boris, um, um, which was published soon after he was elected, that we needed to make a very strong commitment to to ensure that as financial pressures mounted, that we didn't uh, sacrifice legacy to pressure on games costs. And that is the position which the current mayor is taking. He is pushing back very hard. On the games related budgets. He said publicly recently that we should be looking, and I think this was a point um, I think Martin made, but we, sh- we should be looking at whether there are opportunities perhaps to use more existing venues um, uh, if that is going to save money um, on, 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 on running the games. And I, and I think that's something uh, we, we are doing. Um, I just think it, it, this is a very difficult problem because obviously when the original plans for the media centre and the broadcast centre were being formulated, we were perhaps in some of the most, um, 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 you know, some of the easiest credit conditions ever. You know, I mean, you could go and borrow money as it now appears for, for just about anything. Um, and now the reverse is the case. And you can't have impacts like that uh, without the games and the legacy planning being affected. And I do think there will be an impact, inevitably, on the, uh, the media and broadcast centre if it becomes clear that we can't raise any private uh, money um, to go into that project. Um, nevertheless, we are going to have to do everything we possibly can to ensure that the issues uh, that Jules raises about making sure that the infrastructure that we put in, the, the, the wiring, the cabling, the connectivity, that that is all planned and delivered and there for, um, for uh, permanent uses. And one thing I would say is that one of the things that the Mayor has done, and this was also referred to by John, is to put together a new uh, board of advisors to advise him on legacy issues. Jules is on that. It's a broad group of people who have significant finance and, and business experience, and people there are absolutely clear that their job is to champion legacy and to question everything that the ODA is coming forward, that local are coming forward, because we do need a bigger and stronger and growing counterweight as 2012 approaches uh, to those people who will inevitably say, well, what really matters is we get this show right, and there'll be a lot of politics in that. So we're doing what we can, um, and we have very strong political support from the mayor, I think from the boroughs, um, and we need to work together with, um, I think it is very important to work with the interests in government, particularly, as I say, Hazel Bliers' department, who are making a huge contribution from their budgets to the Games, and we'll rightly stand up and say, if we're doing that, we do expect the legacy interests not um, to be compromised. But we face difficult economic circumstances, as we all know. Well,
1: thank you, Thank you, Neil, for that thoughtful and thorough response. Can I have a question here,
8: please? So from the RSA, I just want to respond to what Stefan said. And um, you have to excuse me being anecdotal. Uh, but if we do want one of the legacies of the Olympics to be mass participation in sport, we've got a long, long way to go. In my experience as a parent and uh, involved in sport, uh, it is probably the case that central London schools are doing least well of any schools in the country. In fact, the evidence I saw when I worked in number 10 confirms this. Least well of any schools in the country in terms of delivering the five hours a week. Um, uh, Last last time I had any contact with it, one of our premier athletic clubs in the country, based in London, was running on an absolute shoestring, uh, kind of Ealing Comedy kind of levels of of funding and organization. One of my sons involved in a, both my sons involved in football teams that play on Sunday. The costs now of playing football have ballooned. Um, We're now talking about kids being charged about £120, £150 a year fees, which, and I'm seeing kids uh, walking away now, good kids walking away from playing football on Sundays because they can't afford those fees. Um, Westminster, where I live, the privatization of the leisure facilities there you the, the company that runs all those leisure facilities has absolutely no kind of mandate or social responsibility of providing access so if an objective is uh, mass participation in sport as a legacy it doesn't seem to, i don 't get a great sense of that being delivered on the ground
1: Okay, so, so I suppose the question that e- emerges from that is um uh, how do we do better on this? That would be the question you would like the panel to uh, to respond to. Well, yeah. Stefan, can you can you just sort of respond to uh, the general? I thought? mean, I, I think there is. And a, I'd like other people to. I,
5: I mean, I echo the problems you raise, and I, I, I just mentioned um, last year I, I ran a survey with um, uh, Channel Four Dispatches. Ed Haukis here in the audience. Uh, he was, produced the programme, and we we asked um, uh, facilities managers about how the Olympics were affecting investment in their local area. And two-thirds of those who'd been thinking of applying for lottery funding were now thinking of not applying for lottery funding because they didn't think they'd get the money, so they wouldn't be able to invest in local facilities. I think the root of this problem is the nature of the contest we've won, actually. I think you have to step back and say, what did did we actually win here? We won an international um, bidding contest run by the IOC. How did we win it? We did it by best meeting the objectives of the IOC. What are the objectives of the IOC? That is to promote the glory of the IOC itself. And everything we do is driven by that. There is a very simple way that we could solve this for, for future generations and for other countries as well who are going to be put in the same position as we are if things continue as, the, as they do. And that's this. We could, we could insist that the IOC awards the Games not to whoever promises the most lavish event, spends the most money, builds the biggest stadium or whatever, but says they award the event to the country that shows the highest increase in mass participation in sport over the last seven years. That would change the landscape of the game, change the nature of the contest, and then we would focus on the things that really count, rather than really, to what seems to me, a lot of quite irrelevant um, and uh, window dressing.
1: Stefan, I mean, we are where we are, you know. <laughs> um, does anyone else like to follow this thought through? We've got to work with what we've got. I mean, how do we use what we've got um, to... Uh, I'll ask you to come back in a second. How do we use what we've got to, to, to do better? But any other questions on this particular particular point following mm-hmm. through? Can we go over there, there first, please? Then we'll come to other other areas.
9: Hi, I'm Amal Rajan from The Independent. Um, the only people that have sort of looked at this and talked about it on public record... Um, are the Public Accounts Committee. You said in two different reports earlier this year that there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that seeing people run and jump on TV or even sort of being aware that they're doing it six or seven miles away makes it more likely you're going to run and jump yourself. I mean, I'm I'm very inspired by saying Bolt, but he's not going to make me run 100 metres. And if you did get participation to increase during the course of the Olympics, there's no evidence that you could sustain it. I mean, you could get sort of a short fix of enthusiasm for lots of kind of quite arcane... And um, if you like niche sports, I mean, BMXing or archery or whatever it might be, but you're not going to be able to sustain it sort of over a long period. Um, And isn't there a danger that with the sort of the target of coming fourth or maybe third in the medals table, we prioritise those sports, which, as you say, um, you know, rich people are good at. So um, in athletics, we won one gold medal, and that was actually someone from uh, the borough of Newham um, but athletics is a sport that lots of poor people participate in and don't have very good facilities in. So isn't there a danger that the way in which we're attacking the uh, 2012 Games, which is to come very high in the medals table, as well as our sort of you know, lack of evidence that participation will increase, is going to end up, again, prioritising sort of richer participants, if anyone? Stefan, can you just respond yeah, to that? What mean. do we do? What do we do? <laughs> no. Well,
5: OK, I, I think the only thing, what we have to do is we, put ha- there we have to put... Um, uh, coaches into schools we have to train people who can coach sports and put them in schools it's not even so much the equipment it's having um, teachers who are involved in sport and who want to promote it and that is just fearsomely expensive um, you know the amount of devo- resource we need to devote to paying people salaries to do that. Forget the um, you know the 20,000 jobs in, on the Olympic site. We need 20,000 new coaches going into schools to teach children to participate, to get them involved. Mm-hmm. And we should make that. Uh, we should have made this our nation's priority at the beginning. Um, and I don't know if it's too late to change our priority, but we should focus on what's important. And to be honest with you, we should. I think we should forget a lot of the rest of this.
8: London is full of underused sporting resources that are owned by the private sector or used for private schools or whatever. You know, uh, I mean, I walked here past you know, gorgeous playing fields at the back of a building just down the road, totally empty, presumably just used for you a know, very, very small number of privileged people. If there was a genuine effort to mobilize the actual resources that exist in this city over the next four years, we would overcome some of the resourcing issues that you're talking about. But it is the case that you've got kids, working-class kids in state schools, uh, who've got nowhere to play uh, you know, and, uh, as they, uh, and as they walk to school they're passing unused manicured playing fields that belong to uh, the private sector or private schools and, and I don't think that's been taken seriously in terms of a kind of mobilisation issue
1: You made your point, I'd like um, John Dickey to respond uh, well, to this. The
3: point I want to make is a, a similar one to the one I made about the investment and in the physical legacy in the East End and it is that especially when talking to the commentariat, we need to establish a disconnect between the costs of staging the games and the potential catalytic effect they can have, not just for regeneration, but also for sports legacy. It's the same sort of argument. If we end up spending just about as little as we can manage to get away with, whether it's eight or eight and a half billion or eight three-quarter billion or whatever, on the games itself, but we fail to put in the necessary investment, whether it's in sports or physical legacy, or any other area of legacy, or the Games' has catalytic effect that we want to leverage, then we will really have failed to deliver for Britain. Much of the... I mean, I agree with what Matthew said about the infrastructure, but the truth of the matter is most of the costs are revenue costs. I mean, it's finding, it's paying people to, to take the kids onto the manicured playing field and so on, and that's, of course, what local councils don't have uh, up and down the country. So if we want to see the Games realise the potential for all of Britain... We have to be prepared to invest in that.
1: Okay, thank you. Now, I'll, p- people who'd like to make points that follow through on this particular issue. Jeffrey right. Matthews, I work for Prince William and Prince Harry. Yeah.
10: I think Matthew successfully rehabilitated himself in the eyes of the commentariat as a supporter of the Labour Party this morning. Um, <laughs> I wish when Matthew had been at number 10, he could have found the sock drawer that had the £400 billion pounds in it. Um, you know, the irony of the sporting legacy debate as I understand it, is that everyone has looked to government uh, for it to make its step in terms of sporting legacy, sees government as having a duty to the youth of this country. And you'll forgive me speaking from where I do, just for commenting rather on the irony of the fact that the one initiative that was talked about a couple of years ago by Tessa Jow, the so-called active generation initiative, was A, not funded, and B, looked for its contributions, its significant contributions, to two organisations, the link between which I will leave you to identify. They were A,
1: the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme, and B, the Prince's Trust. Thank you very much. Uh, Can we come here? Stay with with the audience for a moment.
11: Morning, I'm Mark Sesson, and I work for GLL, which is a social enterprise company that runs 65 Sport and Leisure centres across London. Most of the swimming pools, most of the athletics tracks, on behalf of the London boroughs, <laughs> and in particular the five um, East London Olympic boroughs, and and I think you know there's a lot of good things being said around this sport issue, but but there is something missing. And whilst everybody's doing the master planning and the massive stuff around the billions, you know that there isn't actually a plan on the ground for the exploitation of the sport opportunities for the Olympic games yet. The London Legacy Plan for sport has failed to be produced. Ken never quite got it out. Boris hasn't yet produced it. And in the meantime, we're building the buildings, and we're laying down the the massive concrete footprint without actually working out how that legacy in sport terms is going to talk to... So that's the physical buildings on the Olympic Park. Not lost yet, but, for instance, there's no money for leisure water in the Aquatic Centre. It's just going to be elite water. And we all know that if you want to get participation, you've got to go right up the pyramid. Black and Asian kids are not going to start their swimming in a 50-meter pool. They need leisure water, water, confidence water attached (laughs) to the other facilities. There's still opportunities, though. There's a lot happening in the schools. It's unfair to say it isn't a massive change. There's a lot of investment. Every school does have um, partnership development managers in community sport work. The five hours after school promise is being delivered in a lot of schools, something like 25% now, another 75% over the next two or three years. So... I'm very optimistic about it, but I do think that there needs to be a clear plan, and I do think we should be seeing to Boris, you know, let's get that plan out, and then let's get everybody signed up to it.
1: That's great. Thank you very much for that thought. Um, I'll do one more comment from the audience. I'm Ian Ashman,
12: and I'm principal at Hackney Community College, and uh, I think we should be a benchmark for the, the challenge of getting participation in sport. We had one Olympian, a Paralympian uh, swimmer, in this Games, Um, Our challenge is to get more of our students, and we don't have many alumni from public schools. Um, So if we succeed, we'll definitely do something about that. I have some grounds for optimism. Um, We have just had two girls selected for the Girls for Gold program, uh, who are going to be coached towards an activity in 2012. Uh, We've got two young men just been selected from our basketball team uh, for the uh, under-20s GB team. But on the other hand, the the government investment we've had is half a post, half a post to increase participation in sport um, for a college with 10,000 students. So uh, there are some signs that are positive. We're getting support from the lottery, for example, for a new athletics academy. Um, But there is definitely more to be done, and I agree a a decent plan that puts investment into facilities like this, um, which are taking residents of the five boroughs, could make a real difference, and uh, I hope that we'll have a lot more than one Olympian when it comes to 2012.
1: Well, thank you for that thought. Who would like to respond to this here among us? Can I will ask, ask Martin Martin first, and then um, then others can follow through who'd like to do. I think it's hugely
4: important area, and thank you very much for for your different um, contributions. Um, yes, I mean my first thought was just to to echo what Stefan said about the IOC. Um, one does sense that there is a need to steer off what the IOC is trying to impose on the games. And I think, luckily, having worked with Boris for many years, I've never seen anyone more masterly than Boris at giving the impression of agreeing to do something uh, and then doing something else altogether. So I think he's the man to handle the IOC. Except button so. his jacket on. <laughs> well, exactly that. Um, on this um, sort of sporting legacy, sporting participation legacy, that seems to me a, a troubled Area actually, because um, i I really don 't think that um, successful games in the East of London is going to do the slightest thing for sporting participation in, in is it Doncaster where um, uh, Jamie you know is is trying to make them all eat healthier diets and so on I mean outside of the area of physical access to the new facilities and even on the edges of it. Um, I I doubt that's going to make any difference at all. I just wanted to challenge this rather unexpected and to me slightly nonsensical sort of class warfare element that's crept into this debate about rich kids. Um, I think the the people who did well in some quite unlikely sports in these Olympics were probably the people whose parents were most ambitious for them and were ambitious enough to defeat the inadequacies of their local... um, uh, community sports facilities. So, I th- and actually, the richest kids in these Olympic games uh, were the Chinese because they were the ones who had the most money per athlete. But um, behind them, so I think that's a completely nonsensical red herring in this debate, if I may say so.
1: Um, other comments from.
12: Yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, I, 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 I substantially agree with what what Martin's just said. I mean, it's just not the case that people like Chris Hoy and Bradley Wiggins are privileged kids. They're not, you know, and. Um, Bradley Wiggins. Um, I used to um, train mm-hmm. on the, the cycle track at Paddington Recreation Ground, which was a ward I once represented on Westminster Council uh, and, know, and know well. Um, and you know, I, I just don't think this um, uh, is right, and I agree um, entirely. But it, it, it's, it's all about um, the, the support that people get, and that generally is from their parents. Um, um, and but I, I think there's i ought to respond a bit on the on the issues around um um putting in place um more opportunity because if we just rely on, on that clearly you know we'll always fail um and i think you know what comes out of everything everybody's said is that without a major amount of government investment in this area, a huge step change in government investment into people, into coaches, into people who teach in schools, you will not achieve um, anything substantial. And I, I, I mean, So even if whatever the Mayor of London does about this is going to have a, a marginal impact. That said... Um, the Mayor's very committed to this, there's going to be more money coming in from the London Development Agency into work on sport. There was significant investment in it by the previous Mayor. We do need to come up with a legacy plan, I agree. Um, the reason for the delay and um, is because the new Mayor wanted actually to make sure uh, that this was his plan and was one that was going to be uh, as good and as fit for purpose as possible and it will come out. I think there is a lot of work going on in terms of looking at the legacy um, of the sports facilities. Um, There's a lot of discussion around the pool. Um, We have looked at the leisure water option. I just think that when you looked at it, and this is a classic case of of, of a games legacy conflict, the expense of putting in leisure water facilities in that pool um, was was massive, and it would almost certainly be far cheaper to create a leisure water opportunity elsewhere in the borough, Um, and that's just. um, um, you know that, that just flows from, from from some of the decisions that were taken so you know I think this is a difficult area. The Mayor is very committed to um, to um, putting more money into this to working with the boroughs around these opportunities but we will not change this unless there's a very fundamental decision that this is an area which government is going to really prioritise and put its money behind um, and you know over the years it's not just the current government You go back to, to, to previous Governments who have, you know, certainly an even less um, um, distinguished record um, on investing in in this area. So, I mean, and I don't think, frankly, this is anything to do uh, with being crowded out by spending money
1: on the games. Thank you very much. Uh, Quick comment, George. I think we've got
6: into that territory about where. I need to respond with kind of a a, a mangled um, uh, cliche about, you know, ask not what you, you know, what the Olympic Games will do for you, what can you do for the Games, frankly, because, you know, the Games isn't, as someone said, you know, going to, you know, directly going to get someone swimming um, in Doncaster, but it's about using it to raise aspiration and to inspire that's what we can expect for the games, if we use it correctly, but then it is going to need people to come forward um, with the investment, investment and the backing. And a lot of that's going to fall to people like me and the colleagues I work with. It's going to be local authorities to do that. Um, and often, it's, it, we're not going to be able to dodge it with, oh, well, we haven't got the money. Actually, I've just said earlier, you know, we spend £1 billion as a local authority in a year, and that's not the totality of public expenditure within my borough. We should find it within ourselves to be able to rise to this challenge that we've got over the next four four or five years. You know I mean some of us were offering you know free swimming to under eighteens before Ken brought it in 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 London and opening facilities like the London fields lido um, you know and and al- although you know it sounds lightweight you know it's it 's london 's only fifty meter uh, outdoor heated pool, and the usage that 's got there are more people swimming in that on in a December and a January than there are in most indoor pools across London, and that is creating real real participation as well as a fantastic Philip for, for our reputation, um, the amount of coverage it's got. Um, and raising inspiration and aspiration, uh, 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 it's, it's not just about sport, it's got to be about arts and culture as well. It's those three areas principally over the next four or five years that we've, we've, we've got to actually use this opportunity and it's not actually what it's going to do for everywhere else it's how can we use it. Uh, to inspire people, um, and finally, I'd, I'd add to Matthew's point. Actually, public schools as well. Actually, it depresses me every time I walk past public schools, uh, as in as in local authority uh, schools. That local authorities can't tell people under local management of schools to actually use them uh, during the weekends and after school hours. And it's a matter of partnership and encouragement. And sometimes that works very well, and schools are uh, some schools rise to the challenge. But actually, there are an awful lot of um, uh, publicly funded schools uh, that actually aren't are, aren't making their contribution because again costs and um, you know we don't want the community coming outside and wrecking our nice new facilities that the government have just just paid for.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, I want to put this back. Uh, remember, there is a huge volume of uh, of expertise here. Um, uh, John Armit, I mean, you're, you you know you're hugely important to this entire enterprise. Um, would you like to make a comment or say something? Or
13: <laughs> just start by saying my my role is, is not particularly the the very issue which you've just been talking about, but I I do pick up Jules' point about inspiration. And um, I know that the government and others have constantly made the point that the, one of the benefits of the Olympics is to inspire. And at the party conferences, I was talking to MPs from around the country who made the point that very often since the games they've been meeting people who've been inspired, and particularly school children, who had been inspired in sport by the Paralympics as much as by the Olympics. And gosh, if somebody can actually do that with those handicaps, have I actually got an excuse for not being able to do as well. And so it was actually acting as a mental stimulus and a mental inspiration to children, just seeing what happens in, in an Olympic games. The challenge is keeping that going, of course, and that, I think, comes back to the other point which was made about you get out of life what you put into it. And it's not all about, you know, I mean, people often talk about the um, the private sector um, education system. It very often has worse physical um, conditions than many of the best state, sc- uh, best state schools. It's about the teaching, it's about the attitude, and it's about the, the inspiration which you take from teachers. Uh, and I think that it isn't money isn't everything when you're trying to do these things it's about attitude I would like to come back to Stefan's point about the 90 percent that we've taken out of work Uh, make the point that in fact we are now investing in developing uh, the Stratford um, site and the other locations at a time when in fact people are falling out of work elsewhere in the construction industry so in fact we are I believe a significant economic benefit Um, over the next few years in a time where things are obviously going to slow down in other sectors of the construction industry. So we are actually going to be keeping skills. We're going to be augmenting skills. Uh, And the other interesting thing about that is the future beyond 2012. Uh, We've got a lot of Australian um, sort of help in doing what we've done. And it's quite interesting to see how Australian companies have really benefited from the fact that uh, Sydney held the Games. And they've gone forth, and they are providing advice, they're providing consultancy services, etc., cetera, et cetera, around the world. And we, we, we have that opportunity. I mean, British engineering uh, companies, going back to some of the um, points which were made earlier on about the improvements in construction techniques and sustainability in reducing carbon outputs in recycling, all these things, are being done on a level here, not done before. We are cleaning up the site, 90% the soil clean cleansing, which is taking place on the Olympic uh, site. It's not been done in this country anywhere before on the scale which we're doing it. The construction industry is now saying to itself, well, we ought to do more of this and not take things to landfill. So we are developing techniques. We're developing opportunities for businesses going forward for a very long time, which can be sold around the world. Uh, and, And I know companies will do that. Because, frankly, companies are very good at saying, what have we done here, let's, let's do more of it. And it's not just big companies. 500 out of the 700 companies that have won work on the uh, Olympics are SMEs. It's not all big companies. And it's across the country. It's not just in London that companies are winning work. So there is opportunity which is being uh, taken right across the country here and which people can build on for the future. So the legacy isn't just a physical legacy it's actually an opportunity for business as much as it is for sport going forward.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Um, very helpful. Go back to uh, the back.
4: question to the panel is, is about um, the very public manifestation of a successful Olympics and Paralympics is often the, the main Olympic stadium. Um, one Olympics that no one's mentioned here is Atlanta. I think it's probably because everyone's forgotten about it. But within a month of Michael Johnson breaking the world 200-meter record, they actually just ripped up the Olympic Stadium and turned it into a baseball park. And I wonder whether Neil could actually clear up what the plans are for the, the main Olympic Stadium, because obviously it was going to be a football stadium with an athletics track, then it wasn't. It was going to be ripped up and just became a, an athletic stadium, and then it might be back on. And I just wonder whether you can shed some light on, on that very public arena where the world will be focusing its attention in in less than four years' time and and what
2: the legacy of that venue is likely to be? I can do it up to a point, and the reason I say I can do it up to a point is that, um, I imagine you you know this, is that this is a matter which is still um, under discussion and no final decisions have been made about this, and that discussion includes... Um, a lot of um, talk to potential end users and, 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 and people who might um, have a role in, in using the, the stadium um, after the Games. I think it isn't actually fair to say that people have, have chip-chopped and, and, and flip-flopped on what it's going to be. I think it's that people in, have written stories in newspapers uh, claiming that such things have happened when, um, and, and that's sort of become uh, a received version of the truth. It, it, it has always been the case... Uh, that, that the basic proposition in relation to the stadium has been that after the games it will be reduced in scale from an 80,000 seat stadium to a 25,000 seat stadium. That's how it's been designed to, to make that possible and so that we have a more sustainable stadium in legacy and that the fundamental core use of that stadium is going to be for athletics. And that hasn't changed, that's, that's always been um, the position. Um, if you look at the, the stadium they built in Beijing, which was a stadium which can be used, I think, now, now for football as, as and probably will actually be used for football mainly, um, um, that, that stadium, if we had tried to build something on that scale in London, uh, would probably have cost, I should think, in excess of £2 billion. We had to build a stadium uh, that could achieve an 80,000 uh, seat capacity Um, at a reasonable price, with a reasonable budget, and where we could deliver a sustainable legacy. London needs uh, uh, an athletics uh, stadium. Um, We don't really have a very good one at the moment at Crystal Palace, which is well past the end uh, uh, of its life. There are aspirations that, as well as athletics, we'll have other sports in the stadium, and that could be um, championship football, Uh, The stadium, as it it is, and any conceivable economic conversion of the stadium, uh, wouldn't um, um, deliver a premiership football club. Those of us who have said that we should have done a premiership football deal on the stadium, thank God we didn't do a deal with a club, as everybody told us to do, that is owned by an Icelandic bank, um, because we'd be in rather a mess today if we'd done that deal. Um, And um, that isn't, um, um, I think, a credible prospect. John's been very clear about about this in in public. What we have to do is to make the best of this stadium, and you have to look in detail at what it's going to be like in Legacy. And it has one very great advantage in Legacy, which is because of a sloping site on which it's uh, placed. It has a very big undercroft area on the south side, and there's a lot of room in there for putting facilities are of very various sorts and I think it's, it's fairly well known that we are in quite active discussions with government and with others about the possibility of putting a significant educational establishment in the stadium um, after the games. Um, we, you could get a, a school, you could get a thousand pupil school in the stadium um, on the south side after the games Um, That is something that evidently would hold out the prospect of uh, perhaps addressing some of the issues we were talking about a little while ago but would certainly produce the possibility of major additional use for the sport facilities. That's something we are committed to continuing to explore uh, and and hope to get there. So basically what we're talking about is 25,000 seats, athletics at, at the core of it, maybe other other sports, we're still in discussions around those, quite active discussions, there are a number of people interested in that, but also looking to have significant educational use afterwards. That's what we're doing. We haven't come to final conclusions on this. Um, Premiership football doesn't work in this stadium. Um, You would have to knock it down and start all over again, and if you knocked it down, why would you build another stadium, frankly? Um, So that's... I think a pretty clear position and and it's one as I say which we haven't we haven't shifted from throughout throughout the discussions and since we became committed to to um, the the, the design and and budget for the stadium that we have well thank
1: you so much Um, I was going to go on but um, we uh, need to clear the room have a cup of coffee and uh, and get off so I'm going I'm afraid to uh, ask us ask people to ask their questions on a Poisonal basis uh, of the panel. I want to just do one thing, which will take about, I hope, less than one minute. Which is, I want to actually ask for a one-sentence answer to the question: What will be the true legacy of the 2012 Games in London? In large quotes on our invite, Uh, and I want to ask that question in one sentence, please, of every person on this panel. I'm going to start from the from uh, from your end, Jules. One sentence, please. What will be the true legacy?
6: Uh, If we use it right for the country, we will have raised aspirations and we would have inspired people. And if we get it right in Hackney, we will build something that will contribute a change of reputation uh, for the borough and what it's known for across London and the country. And the danger to that is if we keep... And when I say we, I mean everybody in the media and everyone involved, if the dialogue is only about cost, when actually we've got to talk about what value is being created.
1: That's a wonderful long sentence, and thank you. Can I have a... Shorter, Stefan, can we have a, a shorter short?
5: sentence? Well, it's a party, it's a very big party, and it'll be a very good, fun party as well. And like any good party, the legacy will be
1: a big hangover. Thank you so much. They'll OK, very thanks. Um,
4: uh, uh, I'd like to win the gold medal for the longest sentence from a sitting position <laughs> <laughs> by saying that, first of all, those of you who are neo-Keynesians now have the opportunity to observe a true sort of Keynesian hole in the ground project, as it were. Going on, that is a phrase from Keynes' hole in the ground. But we, it is very interesting that, in eight, twelve or eighteen months' time, the entire uh, speculative by-to-let, flat. Building and commercial property sector of London will have ground to a halt. This will be the one major continuing construction project involving, as you say, 700 companies with work. So that is a positive point. As to the legacy, that was a semicolon. Um, <laughs> as to the legacy, a reprojection of London as a great, cheerful, resilient city. Okay, sub down, that, that's, that would have been very good. Thank you, sir.
1: <laughs> no.
3: Well, I, 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 I shall go for the sprint. Done, uh, done wrong, it's uh, a nice party in a nice park. Done well, it's a world-class quarter of London. Excellent,
1: thank you. And finally, Neil. We, we, we're going to build
2: a, a whole new piece uh, of city here on a terrific scale. It's going to be a dynamic, well-connected, creative place to live. It's going to change the face of East London um, and drive new jobs and opportunities, both for people who come in to live there but also for the communities who are living there at the moment.
1: Thank you very much. And um, just for me to uh, uh, tell you that there is some goodie bags at the back, thank you very much to everybody in the panel. Thank you very much for your contribution on the floor. Thank you.